You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our gracious Father, it is our desire that you would open our eyes and our hearts to the truth this morning and give us an understanding of your word and the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to all who are here, both believer and unbeliever, in that great event. Thank you for your grace and your goodness and the clarity of your word and make us to trust in it and place our confidence in it and in the risen Savior in whose name we pray. Amen. We're going to be talking this morning about the resurrection, or I shouldn't say we, I am going to be talking this morning about the resurrection. You're not going to be doing any talking, hopefully, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ for two reasons. First, because today is Resurrection Sunday, and second, because it flows quite naturally with what we have been studying these last number of months in the Gospel of John. Last Sunday, we finished up with the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 19. And so this morning, if we were just continuing, we would start chapter 20, which is the account of the resurrection. But we're going to... uh, What I'm going to do today is kind of give an introduction to the doctrine of resurrection with some of its implications from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We have seen in John's gospel how the Lord Jesus suffered and how how he suffered and why he suffered and the things that he endured and how his death was certified and uh, validated by a number of different people. And then how his body was placed in a borrowed tomb of one Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, and that tomb was in the location of the garden where Jesus was crucified with two other thieves. And we've looked at how all of that is a fulfillment of Scripture, uh, the number of Scriptures that are fulfilled in all of those details. It's been quite amazing. And now today we're picking that up by looking at the resurrection. And today is going to be kind of uh, an introduction to that subject, as I said, but it's going to be the first in a series of messages on the subject of the resurrection. Over the course of the next couple of months, we're going to be working our way through John 20 and 21. And here's what we're going to be doing. I'm going to be... I'm going to be unfolding the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ to the, to the greatest degree that I think that I am intellectually capable of doing. And while we do that, we're going to be putting together all of the resurrection appearances. So we're going to look at the historical details, the facts of it, the appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then all of the implications of the resurrection of Christ for the gospel and for our future and what that means and the certainty for those who have been placed in Jesus Christ by the grace of God. So it's going to be quite a lengthy, and by lengthy I don't mean years, but I mean a couple of months at least, of study on the subject of the resurrection. And the accounts in the Gospels, in the four Gospels, the accounts of the resurrection are historically considered some of the most difficult passages and portions of the Bible to harmonize because uh, liberal skeptics and critics love to read the Gospel accounts and say, well, there's all of these discrepancies and differences there in the various accounts, and there's no possible way of harmonizing them They're all separate and there's all kinds of contradictions, and so they give up. I don't think that there are any contradictions. There are differences in the way that various authors describe the resurrection narrative, but they're not contradictions. And so we're going to be, as we work our way through John 20, we're going to be looking at all that Matthew, Mark, and Luke say about the resurrection as well, and putting into a chronological order all of the resurrection appearances and trying to uh, seek to put together a harmony of those events from the perspective of, of all four Gospels and not just John. So that's sort of what lies ahead. Today, I want to give you an introduction to the theology of resurrection and the significance and importance of it from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles open to the passage that we read at the beginning of the service, you will need to do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
We're going to be looking specifically at verses 12 through 19. This is the longest teaching portion in all of Scripture on the subject of the resurrection. There are larger blocks of Scripture that talk about the resurrected Christ, like John 20 and 21 is more text. But of those texts that have have actively teach about the resurrection and detail the theological significance of it, 1 Corinthians 15 is the largest single passage we have on the doctrine of resurrection. So we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19, but I want to set a little bit of the table for you, as it were, with the context. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection doesn't start in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. It actually starts back in verse 1. And the Apostle Paul is addressing this because, as you'll see in verse 12, there were a number of Christians in the Corinthian church who had begun to deny the doctrine of resurrection. Not specifically the resurrection of Christ, though that was the implication, but they denied that God raised the dead. And so Paul is dealing with that, but he sort of sets it up a little bit for the first 11 verses. In verses 1, and we're just, I'm just going to kind of give you an overview until we get down to verse 12. In verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul speaks of the gospel that he preached, and he is showing that the resurrection of Christ is not, it's not ancillary, it's not secondary to the gospel. It's the core of the gospel. Without the resurrection of Christ, there is no gospel. There's no good news. There's no church, there's no theology, there's no New Testament. If you take the gospel out of the New Testament, or sorry, take the resurrection out of the gospel and out of the New Testament, you just have a, you just have a gibberish of disconnected passages. The resurrection is the theme of the New Testament. The gospels anticipate the resurrection and detail the resurrection, and then all of the epistles give to us the implications of the resurrection for our daily life. So the resurrection is central to the entire New Testament. And it is certainly central to the gospel. And that's what Paul is getting at in verses 1 and 2. Now I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received. This is the gospel that you embraced. This is the gospel which in which you stand. Verse 1. This is the gospel by which you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what is it that Paul had preached? He's going to define that and describe that beginning in verse 3. For I deliver to you, this is the message you preached, the message you believed, the message that saved you, the message in which you stand, this is the message in which you hold fast. What was that message? I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Notice that the Apostle Paul twice mentions this being according to the Scriptures. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And we've talked about that in recent weeks. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement is that Christ died in the place of, in the stead of sinners. He died in their place. As their substitute, what I deserved, He took. What what wrath I should have borne for my own sin, Christ bore on my behalf. He died for our sins, and this was according to the Scriptures. And Paul's referring there to the Old Testament Scriptures, and we saw how the death of Christ was prophesied and predicted throughout the Old Testament, and all of the details of His death fulfilled all of the passages that described what the Messiah would do for His people. And not only did He die for sins according to the Scriptures, but He was buried in the tomb. That's what we looked at last week in John 19. And then He was raised again according to the Scriptures. And again, there Paul's quoting, uh, referring back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament Scriptures also predicted the resurrection. And you see Peter preaching out of Psalm 16 in Acts chapter 2. 
saying that this Jesus who died is also risen again to fulfill the Scriptures. And he quotes David's psalm in Psalm 16. It also is fulfilled in Psalm 22, or it's mentioned and alluded to in Psalm 22. And it is certainly alluded to in Isaiah 53. In no, no less than three different passages, the resurrection of Christ was predicted in the Old Testament. So Paul says, this is the Gospel which was preached, which you have believed, in which you stand. This is the message that I preached, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again according to the Scriptures. So all of this is according to Old Testament prophecy and prediction. All of this is according to the Word of God. Verse 5. Now, before you look down, not only, not only was the resurrection in the Old Testament, not only is it central to the Gospel, but it is something that is validated through eyewitness testimony because of the appearances of Jesus. And now it is the appearances that Paul mentions beginning in verse 5. Verse 5. And that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And that's the Damascus Road uh, resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ that converted Saul of Tarsus. Now, notice the list of appearances that he gave here. Paul is giving a list of witnesses, as it were. And he's saying to the Corinthians, because he knows that some of them deny resurrection. So he's saying to them, this is the message that you believe. You believe in a risen Savior. And now that you have believed in a risen Savior, some of them were starting to deny that God raised the dead. But Paul says, there are witnesses to this resurrection. You believed in a resurrected Savior who appeared to people, Cephas, and then to the twelve. And he's giving here a list of resurrection appearances. Now you'll notice that this is not a comprehensive list because there are appearances that occur in the Gospels that are not mentioned here. For instance, you will notice that the Apostle Paul does not mention the appearances to the women. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary doesn't mention those, does he? And he doesn't mention the two on the road to Emmaus that Luke records in Luke chapter 24. He doesn't mention that appearance as well either. So what is the Apostle Paul doing? Does he not mention them because he doesn't know about them? Or does he not mention them because they're not significant? If there is an order or structure to Paul's list here, it seems to be a chronological structure. And Paul is not giving a comprehensive list, but he does seem to be focusing in on the appearances of Christ to, listen, his authorized representatives whom Christ commissioned to preach the very gospel that Paul mentions in verses 3 and 4. Now, that would not have included the women. Not that they shouldn't have shared the resurrection. But you'll notice that the Apostle Paul speaks of uh, the twelve, of the apostles, of himself, of Cephas, and of James. These are all commissioned men and of the 500 who were likely standing around when Jesus ascended uh, at, the, at the ascension. And he gave to them the commission to go out into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded them and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that's the Great Commission. So all of these appearances that Paul lists here all of them are to authorized representatives who were called to present uh, to present the message of the gospel that he mentions in verses three and four. So why doesn't Paul mention the women? I think for this very significant reason, in that culture, in that culture, women were not considered reliable eyewitnesses and were not allowed to testify in a court of law. That was not my belief. Okay, that was that culture then. Just so we're clear and we're on the record of saying that that was that culture then. So Paul doesn't mention that, not because in his view the appearance to the women is insignificant, but the Apostle Paul is laying out a case of for reliable eyewitnesses whose testimony would be embraced in the court of law. Do you know how long, how many hours it would take for 500 eyewitnesses to give 15 minutes of testimony each in a courtroom concerning what they saw in the resurrected Christ? That's what Paul's getting at. And so he has this list of people, and it seems to be chronological, and notice that he mentions 500. And notice what he says about the 500. Most of whom 
remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, some had died. And it's almost as if the Apostle Paul is saying, keep in mind, he appeared to 500 people, and if you want to go ask those 500 people, most of them are still alive even to this day, while Paul was writing this, which was about 16 years after the events of the resurrection. So if you doubt Paul, you can go interview some of the 500. Some of them have fallen asleep, Paul says, but most of them are still alive till now if you would like to go interview them concerning what they saw. So this gospel, which is central to the New Testament, it is central to the gospel. It is part of the message that preaches. It's the part of the gospel. It is the part of the message that saves us, this belief in the resurrection, and it is attested to by eyewitnesses. So then Paul says in verse 11, verse 12, Now, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, this brings us to the passage that we're going to be looking at in detail, verses 12 through 19. Let me, before we jump into that, let me give you an overview of what the rest of the chapter is about. Beginning at verse 20, the Apostle Paul talks about the, the order of resurrection. Christ first, he's the first fruits, and then those who are alive at his coming, etc. Kind of lays out the order of, in which there's going to be resurrections yet in the future. Beginning at verse 35, the Apostle Paul answers the question of, of what is the nature of the resurrected body, and he answers that. And then beginning at verse 50, through the end of the chapter, the Apostle Paul speaks of the necessity of the resurrection. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So there has to be a resurrection, and we have to have a new body. And so this new body, this glorified body, is what is going to inherit the the, uh, the kingdom of God. And then in verse 58, Paul kind of lays out the motivation that this is for Christian service. So looking at verses 12 through 19, there are some in the Corinthian church who would begin to question the reality of the resurrection of the dead. So verse 12, if, Paul, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, which is what Paul preached, this is what they had believed, how is it now that some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now imagine this. In the Corinthian church, there were people, believers, and maybe in a church that was larger than this or smaller than this. We don't know. But imagine this group of people here. Imagine that there are some people here today who do not believe that God raises the dead. Imagine such a thing. That's the way it was in the Corinthian church. There were some people there in that body of believers who had begun to question the doctrine of resurrection itself. And notice that they hadn't begun to question specifically the resurrection of Christ, but that God raises the dead. The whole idea of God raising the dead and resurrecting physical bodies in glory for heaven and for eternity, this is what they questioned. So it was, the, it was in general the idea that God raises the dead. But if you question in general or deny in general that God raises from the dead, then you have to deny something specifically, right? And what is it? That God raised Christ from the dead. Because if there is no resurrection of the dead, generally speaking at all ever, then certainly there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, specifically. Deny the resurrection generally, and you must deny the specificity of the resurrection in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what some of the Corinthians had done. Now, what would cause Christian Corinthians to begin to doubt the idea of the resurrection itself? Now, it's possible that they doubted resurrection in general, but believed specifically in a risen Christ. And maybe those these things, though they are contradictory to us, in their mind they believed both of these things. And what Paul is doing is he is showing them you cannot hold these two inconsistent things at the same time. One of these has to go. If you deny resurrection in general, Christ is not risen. But you believe Christ is risen. And therefore, why do you deny that there is a resurrection, generally speaking? Now, what the Corinthians had done is they had, been, they had slipped back into their typical cultural way of thinking. In the Greek way of thinking in the ancient world, the Greeks believed that everything material was evil and everything spiritual was good. And they believed that true salvation, true heaven, true liberation was to be liberated from the body. It was for my true self to leave the body and to leave the material world and to go off into nothingness or spiritual reality of some sort. It's kind of a new age idea. Go off into spiritual reality. 
in the Greek way of thinking, it was very Platonic. It was in the Greek way of thinking, it was horrible. The idea of being confined to a physical body for all of eternity, that was a horrible idea to them. And into that culture steps Christianity, which says, not only are you confined in a physical body now, but after you die and you go to heaven at some point in the future, God is going to raise your physical body from the grave. It will be glorious. It will be eternal. It will not be subject to death or disease or decay or destruction. It will be an unhonorable body. And that body you will dwell in for all of eternity in a physical heaven, in a physical earth, on a planet, in paradise, with God, with Jesus Christ, who was raised physically from the dead. See, Christianity doesn't believe that all things physical or evil. In Christianity, we believe that God created all things and pronounced them very good. That sin has corrupted this, but that God will restore this. And there's nothing inherently evil or horrible about physical things. And so the Corinthians, they were thinking like typical Greeks. Now, in our day, it is not uncommon to run across people who also deny that the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened and who also deny that there will be a resurrection. Some of them are atheists. Some of them are liberal Christians who deny all things even... Or, sorry, I shouldn't say liberal Christians. If you deny all things supernatural, you're not a Christian. But some of them are people who claim to be Christians and they're in churches, but they deny all things supernatural. And when you begin with the presupposition that supernatural things cannot happen because supernatural things are impossible because they are super or outside of nature, then you must explain the evidence for the resurrection in almost any way other than Jesus Christ is really raised from the dead. If you begin with the wrong presupposition, you will inevitably be driven to the wrong conclusion. And people who deny resurrection and specifically deny that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact, people who deny that are people who are beginning with an anti-supernatural bias. The unbelief in the resurrection is not due to a lack of evidence. Because people who, like me who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ have the same amount of evidence, the same historical documents, the same extra-biblical or outside-of-Scripture attestation to the New Testament and to the person of Christ as everybody else has. The difference between me and an atheist is that we have different starting points. The atheist begins with the presupposition, supernatural things cannot happen because God does not exist. And so if they admit that a body was raised from the dead, then that of course means that it can only happen supernaturally. And if something supernatural happens, then that calls into question their whole presupposition, which is that matter is all that is, ever was, or ever shall be. And so like Carl Sagan, they would rather try and explain away the evidence or deny the evidence rather than question the presuppositions and their worldview. I begin from a different starting place. My different starting place is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you believe that, then there is nothing in this book that is unbelievable. Nothing. If indeed the God revealed in this book created all things in the beginning by the word of His power, out of nothing, if that is true, and this God exists, and He created this universe, then everything else in here is rational, it is believable, and it is the most rational thing to believe. To deny it, if in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, to deny everything, anything else in this book makes you the worst and stupidest of fools. So it depends on where we start at. If we start with the presupposition that nothing supernatural can happen, then you have to examine the evidence in light of that. If you start from the presupposition that in the beginning God, then of course, why would anybody question that God can raise the dead? If he can create a universe out of nothing, you think raising a dead body to life is anything for him? It's nothing for him. So of course it's reasonable. Of course the resurrection is reasonable and rational if in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so it would make sense for 
for the Corinthian believer to deny that it's possible for God to raise the dead if they have already affirmed that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that this God was revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And that this guy hung on a cross to pay the price for sinners. Why should it then seem unbelievable to any of us that God should also raise a dead person to life? It's not irrational or unbelievable to believe that at all. If indeed God created the heavens and the earth. So verse 13. But, now Paul's going to, Paul's going to walk us through the dire implications of denying the resurrection of Christ. So follow his argument. Verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You can't really argue with that, can you? If there's no resurrection of the dead, if God doesn't raise dead people, then he certainly didn't raise Christ from the dead. That follows logically. Verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Why is their preaching vain? Because Paul had preached what? This is the message that I delivered to you, which is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, He was buried, and that He rose again. Well, if God does not raise dead people, then Christ has not been risen. And that's the whole point of everything that He preached. So Paul says, then my preaching is vain. It's empty. It's worthless. It profits nothing. It produces nothing. And it is worth nothing. If indeed Christ does not raise the dead, then the message that Christ raises the dead is a useless message. It's actually a stupid and foolish message. Verse 14, Our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. So not only is the preaching of the gospel vain, it is also vain to believe in the gospel and to believe this message that God raised a dead man. That is vain. It is empty and useless if indeed God doesn't raise dead men. Now his logic is impeccable, right? If there's no supernatural, then there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then every message that says Christ is risen is a useless message. And if every message that says Christ is risen is useless, then believing that message is certainly useless and vain as well. Because it is not the power or the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. You can believe in a unicorn riding leprechaun, if you want. And you can believe it sincerely and fervently and passionately and argue for unicorn riding leprechauns. Is that going to save you just because your belief in such a fantasy is real and fervent and passionate and sincere? Does that save you? No. And just as Leprechauns riding unicorns cannot save you from your sin. They cannot save you from the grave. Neither can a dead Savior. He can't save you from your sins. He can't save you from the grave either. Only a risen Savior can do that. And so if you believed in a fiction, your belief is useless. Because your belief, no matter how sincere, is placed in something that cannot save you. That's Paul's argument. Now, look at verse... Where are we at? 15. Moreover, the implications, the dire consequences of denying resurrection just get more profound and more severe. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Paul says, not only are preaching that is vain, and your faith that is vain, and it's worthless, but moreover, we're false witnesses, we're liars, because we testified against God that He raised the dead, whom He didn't raise, if God does not raise the dead. Right? We have lied about God, which is the worst of all lies. To say something false about God is the worst possible sin in all of the world because it misrepresents the greatest conceivable being in all of the universe and that exists. And so to testify something wrongly about God and what He has done is to blaspheme Him and to lie about Him. And so we are false witnesses if indeed we have said that Christ was raised when in fact He was not raised, if in fact God does not raise the dead. Verse 17. Uh, verse 16. If, if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Now you have to... Forgive Paul for the repetition because it sounds somewhat repetitive, right? But he's emphasizing something and he's driving it home. And so he condenses all of this into one uh, really simple syllogism, one really simple line of reasoning. 
Your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins, meaning you have not been delivered from the wrath of God. You have not been delivered from your unregenerate state. You are still in peril and you will still perish if you were to die right now. If indeed Christ has not been raised from the dead. But the dire consequences get even more severe. Look at verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Fallen asleep is a metaphor there for death. It's a picture of death. Those who have died, who have believed upon Christ for salvation, and then had died. Now keep in mind that 1 Corinthians is written about 16 years after the resurrection. If those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and have believed upon Him in hopes of eternal life and in hopes of, of resurrection of their own, if Christ has not been raised, then their faith is worthless. And then what has happened to them? If they believed in a, in a dead Savior who cannot save people, then they have perished. So here's the implications of it. If Christ has not risen, then every loved one that you have had who has died in a state of trusting in a dead Savior has died in, in really a, a faith that cannot save them and they are in hell and there is no hope that you will ever see them again. Dire consequences. Now verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If, if we are living in this life and we are trusting in Christ and our hope is just the comfort that we receive in this life, but nothing beyond this life. In other words, if my, my confidence in the resurrection, we'll just call it that because it makes us feel good, that Jesus is spiritually raised from the dead. If my confidence is in this resurrection, and it's not a historical fact, but all it does is offer me some solace or comfort in this life, and the only benefit is in this life and this life alone, then we are of all men most to be pitied. Because if, if I'm giving up everything in this life in hopes of gaining something in the next, if I'm sacrificing in this life and denying myself in this life and bearing my cross in this life and serving other people in this life and testifying in Christ in this life and hoping in Him in this life, but all it gets me in the afterlife is, is perishing in hell, then we're of all men most to be pitied. We would be better off if Christ is not risen. We would be better off to follow the philosophy of the Epicureans who just said, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow there's nothing. Live for today. Live for yourself. Deny yourself nothing. Indulge your flesh. Milk the most you can out of this life. Be as selfish and self-centered as you possibly can. And this, by the way, is exactly what the atheist and the agnostic and the denier of the resurrection is hoping for. That there is no resurrection. Because if there is a resurrection, guess what? There is a resurrection to reward and there is a resurrection to recompense. And all men will fall on one side or the other. Either be resurrected to eternal glory and eternal reward or be resurrected to eternal recompense for their sins. And the unbeliever does not want that. So they deny that there is a supernatural, because really their hope is in no supernatural thing, and their hope is in this life only. If there is no resurrection, then wicked person, be as wicked as you possibly can. Because there is nothing for you to lose. Nothing for you to lose. And those of us who have trusted in Christ, if there is no resurrection, we gain nothing. We sacrifice everything in this life and we get nothing for it. But if there is a resurrection, a wicked person, you're going to lose everything. And that for all of eternity. But the righteous will receive a resurrection and reward for all that they have hoped in and trusted in, in this life and for the life to come. But if there is no resurrection, <laughs> Christian, you are of all people most to be pitied. You are a sorry staff. And that's about the best thing that can be said of you. That you're a sorry staff. If there's no resurrection. But if there is, then that changes everything, right? Has he been risen? Has he been raised? Yeah, we both we most certainly believe that he has, right? We most certainly believe that he has. But there are people even today who deny the resurrection and they try and explain the evidences 
that exist in, in different and various ways. And I'm going to give you a couple of those. I'll give you a couple of them. Let me give you a list of the things that we know. These are the bare truths that we know to be true from history, from extra-biblical sources, from eyewitness documents, and yes, from the four Gospels and from the New Testament. Yes, they were written by those documents were written by Christian, but they were written by eyewitnesses who circulated those doctor, documents among the very eyewitnesses who could have refuted anything if they had gotten anything wrong in any of those Gospel records. So here are the things that we know to be certain from history. Number one, that Jesus Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Number two, he was buried in a tomb outside of Jerusalem on the Friday before the Jewish Passover and before the Sabbath of the Jewish Passover week. Number three, Roman soldiers were placed at that tomb to guard the tomb. Number four, Sunday morning, the tomb was empty and the soldiers fled. Number five, people reported seeing the same Jesus who hung on the cross on Friday alive on Sunday. Number six, this belief that he has been raised and has risen, transformed the disciples from uh, cowardly people, men who fled at the first sign of dangers in, into bold proclaimers of a resurrected, a crucified and resurrected Messiah. Number seven, this message of the resurrection was first preached in the very city where the events allegedly took place and among the very people who were eyewitnesses to these events. Number eight, all of the apostles suffered for their belief and of the twelve apostles, eleven of them suffered a martyr's death for that belief. And then number nine, the dead body of Jesus Christ was never found. Those are the things that we know to be true. Not just from the New Testament, but from history as well. The New Testament is our most reliable guide on the facts of these events. Now, how do some people explain these? There's a number of different ways that have been offered by people, like some in the Corinthian church, who deny the resurrection. The first is the unknown tomb theory. According to the unknown tomb theory, this is how they explain all the details and the facts that I just gave you. According to the unknown tomb theory, nobody really knows which tomb Jesus was placed in because his body was just thrown into a common pit, which they did for criminals who suffered crucifixion. And that after a few days, that body in that pit became unrecognizable, mingled in with the remains of everybody else. And that several weeks later, the disciples began to preach and proclaim that Jesus was raised from the dead. And then when they tried to produce the body or tried to argue about whether he really was raised or not, everybody said, well, we don't want to know where the body was at, so we can't really prove to you that he actually rose from the dead. That's the unknown tomb theory. Now, that goes in the face of all of the facts that we know, because we know that several people witnessed exactly where the body was laid. We know that Pontius Pilate authorized that the body be taken off the cross. We know that Pontius Pilate authorized that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take the body off the cross. We know that Joseph of Arimathea laid it in his own tomb. And all of the eyewitnesses and historical evidence that we have says that Jesus Christ was not thrown into an unknown, unmarked grave, but that his body was placed in the tomb by people who loved him and cared for him and prepared that, bo prepared that body for burial. So you cannot possibly believe the unknown tomb theory if you even take any historical details at face value or seriously at all. The second theory is the wrong tomb theory. According to this tomb, there were, uh, this theory, there were a lot of tombs around Jerusalem all carved out of rock. They all look very similar. And they placed Jesus in one of them. But on Sunday morning when the women went to the tomb, they saw they went to the wrong tomb, mistakenly, I'm mixing it up with all the other tombs that were in the area of Jerusalem, they mistakenly went to the wrong tomb, saw that our stone had been rolled away or was sitting away from the entrance, and they jumped to the conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. They jumped to this conclusion, assumed a resurrection, and went and told the apostles. They got the, wrong, they got the tomb wrong. That's the wrong tomb theory. Now that theory actually proves too much and asks us to believe too much. Because we are to believe by that that Mary and the other Mary went back and they told Peter and John, and Peter and John did what? They ran to the wrong tomb. And then when they went back and told the other disciples, what did they do? 
Well, they went to the wrong tomb. And then they, Joseph of Arimathea heard about this. And Joseph of Arimathea went back to his own tomb. And guess what? He got his tomb confused. You know, the one he bought and paid for? He got his tomb confused with all the other tombs in Jerusalem. So he went to the wrong tomb. And, and, and Caiaphas went to the wrong tomb. And Pilate went to the wrong tomb. And the soldiers were stationed at the wrong tomb. And the soldiers fled from the wrong tomb. And the angels showed up at the wrong tomb. The angels showed up at the wrong tomb and mistakenly said he is risen. The whole world went to the wrong tomb. That's what we are to believe. The whole world went to the wrong tomb. Come on. Not the wrong tomb. Or some have suggested the legend theory. And that is that the resurrection accounts were preached by the disciples decades after the event. That uh, nobody claimed that Jesus was actually raised from the dead until decades after the event in faraway lands where they came up and concocted this idea. And it was uh, so long after the original eyewitnesses had lived and died that nobody could verify it. Nobody could interview anybody. Except for the fact that Paul writes 1 Corinthians in 56 AD, roughly uh, just, uh, or, sorry, before 50 AD, uh, about 15, 16 years after the events of the resurrection, and he mentions over 500 people who were still alive who saw him and all the disciples who saw him. And remember, the resurrection was not preached in some faraway land. So where did the preaching of the resurrection begin? In the city of Jerusalem. In the city of Jerusalem, where anybody on the day of Pentecost, in hearing Peter proclaim a risen Christ, could have said, come on and walked outside the city gates to the tomb where he laid and examined the tomb for themselves to see if he was there or not. And when the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities wanted to, to quelch belief in the resurrection and kill this preaching about a resurrected Christ, why didn't somebody produce the body? Nobody ever produced the body. And, and if they wanted to kill Christianity, they could have done so in the cradle just by producing the body. And it wasn't preached decades after the events, the resurrection. It was preached weeks after these events. And again, in the very city where these things took place. Another theory that has been suggested is the hallucination theory. And this is the idea that after the crucifixion, the disciples and the women so expected Jesus to rise from the dead that you know how it is when you're expecting something to happen and then you hear a noise and you think you see something and you begin to hallucinate something when you're really anticipating it? Well, that's what they say that the resurrection appearances were. They anticipated or expected Jesus to rise from the dead so strongly that a few days after the crucifixion, and his burial, they began to have hallucinations where they were hallucinating seeing the risen Christ. And that's all the appearances were, were just hallucinations. The problem with that is that none of the women, nor Joseph of Arimathea, nor anybody involved on, uh, in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, and the crucifixion and burial of Jesus, none of them expected the resurrection to happen. None of them did. That's not what they expected or anticipated. When those women came to the tomb that morning and they saw that the stone had been rolled away and that the body was missing, they didn't jump to the conclusion of a resurrection, did they? What did they conclude? Somebody moved the body. That was the first thing they thought of. Not, oh, he must be risen, but somebody moved the body. There are only certain types of people that have hallucinations. And most of them are people with certain mental conditions or certain mental uh, parameters in place. I've never had in my life a hallucination. I doubt that anybody in this room has ever had a hallucination. If you have, please don't raise your hand. I don't want to know who you are if you're subject to hallucination. But I doubt that probably any of us really even know anybody who has had or been subject to intense hallucination. Because only certain types of people are subject to hallucinations. Are we to believe that both of the women at the tomb were subject to hallucinations? Are we to believe that 500 people, all 500 of them, and all 12 of the disciples were those type of people who have hallucinations on a regular basis? And most hallucinations are subjective. They're independent. In other words, they're subject to my experiences and my thought processes. It is impossible to find two people who have an identical hallucination. What do you think chances are of finding five people who would all have an identical hallucination. No, it wasn't a hallucination. Now, all of those theories that I've just given you assume that the body was still in the tomb, right? That the body was still there. But they went to the wrong tomb. 
or they, it was an unknown tomb, or that it was just hallucinations, or that the body was still there in the tomb, and they began to preach these legendary mythical tales. Now, there are a few people who admit, okay, the tomb was empty, and the body was missing. Here's how we would explain it. So the first theory that sort of falls into that category of the body was actually missing, and it wasn't there, is the disciples stole the body theory. You can probably guess just from the title what that theory is about, the disciples stole the body. This is the one that was actually circulated in, at the very day when uh, the, the, the Jewish religious leaders bribed the Roman guards to tell everybody, start circulating the story, that the disciples came in while the Roman guards slept and stole the body. So here's what the theory says. The Roman guards fell asleep, and while they were slumbering that night, the disciples came in, and, these, and, and they rolled away this massive stone tablet from the entryway of the tomb, and they crept in and carefully and quietly unwrapped the entire body to leave the grave clothes there, because the grave clothes were there for the resurrection appearances. They unwrapped the body and then snuck it away out from underneath the, the watch of those up to 16 Roman guards while they slept. So here's what we are to believe. We are to believe that these cowardly disciples who fled at the first sight or thought of danger, that these men mustered enough courage to be willing to face down 16 at least highly trained, heavily armed, elite fighting force Roman soldiers stationed at the tomb, that they were willing to face them down to go in, and that while they slept without waking up any of the guards, they rolled away this massive stone making hardly a sound. Yes, right. And then they crept in and went through all the all of the the trouble of unwrapping the body so that they could take it away and then do what? And then they could say that Jesus rose from the dead and then people could beat them and persecute them and hate them and kick them out of the synagogue and eventually that they would die for that belief, never once recanting it. Sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? You think the disciples did that? No, they didn't steal the body. Some people suggest that the authorities stole the body. It wasn't the disciples, actually the authorities. Uh, Pontius Pilate stole the body and to keep it in safekeeping, you know, so nobody would take the body and then deceive everybody into thinking that Jesus had risen from the dead. Well, that didn't happen because the Gospels don't say that that happened. And the greatest proof, by the way, that the disciples uh, did not steal the body is the fact that the Roman soldiers were not executed for falling asleep at their posts because they weren't. And that was a capital crime. And when the disciples began to preach that Jesus was raised from the dead, and the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, and the Roman authorities did not want them preaching that message. And they threatened them at the cost of their very lives to stop preaching that message. If the authorities stole the body, why didn't the authorities just produce the body? When Peter stood up and said, he is risen, why didn't Pilate say, no, no, you understand. We took the body. Here it is. See, there's no risen Savior. You know why the Roman authorities did not do that? Because they could not do that. There was no body. And it, the last and most fanciful theory that has been offered to explain the facts of history is the swoon theory. The swoon theory. Now, there's one that's kind of tied in with this somewhat closely. It's called the Passover plot, uh, suggested by a man named Scheinfeld, Scheinfeld, Schoenfeld, however you pronounce those type of names, uh, some years ago. But the, pass, the Passover plot is kind of connected to the swoon theory. And the swoon theory I've mentioned uh, in the last few weeks. The swoon theory says that Jesus, while he was hanging on the cross, simply passed out. He lost consciousness. The blood loss, the dehydration, the suffering, the excruciating pain caused him to pass out. And everybody thought he was dead. The four Roman soldiers thought he was dead. The centurion who came to examine him thought he was dead. Pilate thought he was dead. And they took the body off the cross. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus both thought he was dead. They wrapped up the body. They placed it in the tomb. Both of the women who observed that both thought he was dead. But he wasn't really dead. Just, just passed out. Just passed out. And then in the cool, damp interior of that tomb, he came to. 
And after having his hands pierced and his feet pierced and his side gouged out and his pericardium punctured and his heart punctured, losing all of that blood and being dehydrated and being so weak and beaten and scourged like he was, he got up inside there and he felt around the tomb. He found the door and he himself rolled that massive stone away from the entrance of the tomb and stepped out and fought off 16 highly trained, heavily armed Roman soldiers, elite fighting force. And then he walked into Jerusalem and he appeared to his disciples and convinced them not that he needed medical treatment, but that he was the victorious Lord of life who had come back from the dead. And then he walked from Jerusalem the seven miles to Emmaus to deceive two other disciples into thinking that he was the risen Savior. And then he walked from Emmaus all the way back to Jerusalem to appear to the disciples again that night, another seven miles on Pierce feet. And then from Jerusalem, he went all the way up north into Galilee to appear to the 500 and to deceive them into thinking that he had been raised from the dead. And none of the disciples ever questioned and thought to himself, you know, he doesn't really look like the victorious Lord of life. He looks like he has a limp. He looks like he needs some medical attention. He looks like he's weak and dehydrated and about ready to die. That is the most unbelievable and stupid theory of them all. If you believe any of these theories, you have more faith than I do. I commend you, I salute you for your faith if you believe any of them. There is one explanation for the facts that meets all of the standards of historical data and explains perfectly exactly what has happened. He has risen. Now, for you, Christian, that is incredible news. Because you have placed your faith not in a dead Savior who cannot save you, but in a risen Savior who is the Lord over death. We do not fear the grave. We do not fear death. Death has lost its sting. Sin has no power over us. Because He has risen, we will also rise. We will rise in newness of life and glorified body, and we will stand before Him and glorify Him in a new heavens and new earth for all of eternity. That is good news. My eternal life, my salvation is absolutely secure because He has risen. But the news that he has risen should terrify any unbeliever who is sitting here this morning. It should terrify you because, because of this fact. Just as my salvation is most certain because of his resurrection, your damnation is also most certain because of his resurrection. You see, God will not wink at your sin. He knows of your sin. And he knows every dirty deed that you have ever done in light or in darkness. He knows every lie that you have ever told every act of thievery that you have ever committed, every idolatry, every blasphemy, every act of lust he sees as committing adultery, every act of hatred he sees the same as murder. He knows every gossip you have ever told, every slanderous lie you have ever uttered, everything you ever thought in the light or in the darkness, he knows it all. And he reads it like a book. And there will come a day when you will stand before him and the books will be open and you will be judged and you will stand before him. And if you do not repent and trust in this risen Savior, he will cast you away from his presence into everlasting fire. Because that is what a good judge would do. A good judge makes sure that sin is not winked at, that it is not overlooked, that he does not turn a blind eye and pervert justice, and the God of heaven will not pervert justice for your sake. He will most certainly see to it that justice is done, that his righteousness is vindicated, and that his name is glorified through the damnation of all who will not repent and trust him for salvation. That is absolutely most certain. Now here's the good news. The good news is that this Jesus Christ is himself God in human flesh. And he stepped into human history. He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death. He lived the life that you cannot live. He died the death that you could not die so that he could pay a price that you could not pay, which is the price for your sin. And God offers you this day eternal life and salvation. But he offers it to you on his terms, not your terms. He is the one who has paid this price. He is the one who has purchased the ransom. He is the one who has satisfied justice. And so if you will have eternal life from his hand, you will have it on his terms and not your terms. And here are his terms. Repentance and faith. Repentance means you confess that you are a sinner. 
You understand that you deserve eternal wrath. You agree with God that you are not a good person. You are a bad person who deserves an eternal hell. You agree with God in all of that. And you turn from your sin and you trust in the one who died on a cross to pay the price for your sin. He died on a cross according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures. And he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. What will you do with that truth? Will you continue to love darkness? Will you continue to excuse your sin? Will you continue to try and explain away the facts? Will you believe lies? Or will you embrace the God who right now, this very moment, offers you salvation through repentance and faith? Be most certain, be most certain that you will either stand before the risen Christ as your Savior and you will stand before Him with joy or you will stand before the risen Christ and He will be your judge. And He will examine you and it will be thorough. And you will get what is coming to you. You must repent and believe the Gospel. God commands you this day to repent, for He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed and He has furnished proof to all men by raising that man from the dead. That's Acts 17:31. Embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior. That is God's command to you. Repent and believe, and He will grant you eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that Christ is risen from the dead and that we can have eternal life because of what He has done. It is joyous for us who have believed. It is a glorious thing. And we pray that You would confirm our hearts in the truth of these things and confirm us in our confidence in Christ and who He has done. We do not doubt this for one moment. We are not like the Corinthians who deny that it is impossible for You to raise the dead. For we believe not only that You have done it, but that You will do it in the future. And we pray for any who are here this morning who are not believers, who have never trusted in Christ for salvation, that You would draw them to You and that You would receive the full reward for the suffering of Your Son. May You glorify Your name in saving sinners and in encouraging the saints today, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.